Soul of the Parsha with Rabbi Nir Menusi. This class is made possible by our kind supporters over at Patreon. Thank you and enjoy the class. Shalom everyone and welcome to our new weekly Soul of the Parsha class. We are now going in, jumping in to the Parsha Shoftim. Shoftim means judges or magistrates. And our topic for today is what is the role of trust in education. We're talking about education in the broadest sense. It could be educating our kids, educating our students, or even educating ourselves. And we want to ask, what is the role of trust in education? And what is the proper balance between authority and trust? How much of the educational system or the educational outlook should be based on authority, how much emphasis should be placed on authority, versus how much emphasis should be placed on trust. And what is the correct formula, if we may say so, for balancing the two? So we're starting by looking at the opening verses of the parasha. This year we're focusing on, on just the openings of the parashat. And the, the parasha opens with the following verse. I'm going to read it first in Hebrew, then in English. Shoftim veshotrim titen lecha bechol she'arecha, asher Hashem elokecha noten lecha, lishvatecha. Veshavtu et ha'am ishpat tzedek. So translated into English, it, it goes the following. You shall appoint judges or magistrates, that's the word shoftim, and also officials or bailiffs. These are two translations for the Hebrew word shotrim. Shotrim, the most common translation, would be police officers. So the, the traditional translations go officials, or like I said, officers, or bailiffs. And, and, and the continuation is for your tribes, in all the settlements that the Lord your God give, is giving to you, and they shall govern the people with due justice, mishpat tzedek. So the two, we're, the, the, the parsha opens with two authoritative figures. The shoftim, judges, and the shotrim, the police officers or officials or bailiffs. What is the difference between the two? So Rashi says the following. He says, the judges, the shoftim, are those who pronounce the sentence. They say what's right and what's wrong and who's guilty and who's innocent. And they just say what it is. They judge, they think, and they say what they believe to be the truth. Whereas the shotrim, the other figure of authority, are those who chastise the people at the judge's orders, beating and binding the recalcitrant with a stick and a strap until he accepts the judge's sentence. Right? This is a translation of Rashi. Very simply put, the shotrim, the police officers or the bailiffs, are the ones making sure that what the judges say is followed. You need someone who, maybe the judge says someone is guilty, uh, but you need someone to then hold him by the hand, make sure he doesn't run away, and, and lead him to his punishment, whatever it may be. So you need people with actual physical strength uh, uh, executing, you know, implementing what the judges are saying. Very simple, very, very common sense. So that's, what, that's how the parasha opens. You need shoftim and you need shotrim, and you have to have both. And it's very, it's very common sense, very simple. 
But then we have something very interesting, and that we wouldn't have maybe necessarily connected the two, but the Lubavitcher Rebbe made a, a very beautiful and very amazing, very thought-provoking connection. A verse in the opening chapter of Isaiah, of the prophet Yeshayahu. At the end of the chapter of chapter 1, verse 26, he says, again, first Hebrew then English, I will restore your magistrates, your shoftim, as of old, and your counselors as of yore. That's the, the translation that I, I chose. I shall restore your judges, like it was before, judges, judges or magistrates, shoftim, and I will also restore your yoatzim, counselors. So, again, we have two figures of authority, but they're not the same. Uh, and, and in the parasha, we have Shoftim and Shotrim, with the parasha being called, by the way, just after the Shoftim. The parasha isn't called Shoftim and Shotrim, it's just called Shoftim, but the ne very next word is Shotrim. But in Yeshayahu, we see that your judges that you miss, the judges, the, the holy judges, judges that are God-fearing, that are the judge according to the Torah, you don't have them now. You have maybe you're ruled by by the the laws of foreign nations and non-Torah laws. But as part of redemption, I'm going to restore your judges as of old. But then the next figure of authority we would maybe expect it would be the shotrim, right? Just like in our parasha it says you need shoftim and shotrim, judges and police officers, and also in the future I will restore those two figures, but. But the, the difference is that the judges are restored, but the police officers are replaced by counselors. So we could say, well, well, we don't have to necessarily connect the two verses. And obviously, you know, in redemption also, it'll be, well, it depends what your picture of redemption is. But for example, Maimonides' picture of redemption is that it's a very, very is that olam the world will, the same laws of nature and of human nature will apply in the future also, but there will be a Mashiach, a king, a, a very righteous king, and we won't be um, ruled over by other nations, And but otherwise it's going to be uh, a regular world, and that means that we're also going to have Shotrim. But there is another reading in which the Messianic days to come human nature will change. And this opens the possibility that the counselors are not just another figure, that we have, you know, three figures of authority that we need to talk about, that are the judges and the shotrim, police officers, and the counselors. But that as we put, if we put the two verses one next to the other, we get the idea that the police officers will be replaced by counselors. So what does this mean? So the Rebbe Rebbe said, this signifies or suggests that in, in the future, humankind will change so much that we are not going to need any police officers. It's a bit like what the, what if, if, you, if you read some anarchists, you know, anarchist doesn't sound like a good word because they don't believe in any laws. But if you read the anarchist ideologues and the people who put forth the the anarchist agenda, they're very optimistic in nature. They believe that human nature is very, very good and kind. And it's ruined 
by institutions. And if only you would have anarchy, then the 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 positive good nature of humankind will will come forth, and 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 everyone will be naturally good. So it turns out, according to this idea, which the Rebbe is putting forward, that in the future we're going to be a, a little bit of anarchists. So we're still going to have judges. So it's not a total anarchy because there will have there will be judges who will proclaim what is right and what is wrong and what is good and what is bad. It's not going to be total anarchy. But it's going to be the very opposite of a police state, or not just a police state. A police state is a state run by the police, but it's going to be a non-police state. It's going to be a state of no police, no policing, no chasing, no, no suspicions. The judge will proclaim what's true and what's right, and we're just going to hear it and identify and say he's absolutely right, I, I can see the truth of his words. And we, we are going to need some counselors to mediate between the judges and us. If it was just the judges and, and us would, you know, and we would be just, you know, fully understanding and appreciating and, and following the judges, we wouldn't need any, you know, we would just have to, we would just need to throw away the shatrim and only have uh, shoftim. But that's not what, it, what comes from the verse in Isaiah. It comes from the verse in Isaiah that we're still going to need people who would maybe explain the judgment, explain the laws of God. But they're not going to police us. They're not going to put, you know, handcuffs and drag us and warn us that if we're not going to do this, they're going to beat us. Nothing like this. They're just going to counsel us. They're going to maybe help us be convinced of the truth of what the judges have just said. And then, and, and that's all it's going to take. We're just going to listen to the counselors, and we're going to go through a, maybe a process of counseling. And at the end of it, we will accept what the judges have said, and, and we'll obey. And that's how it's going to be. This is the Messianic days to come. It goes very beautifully with something that's written in the Zohar. The Zohar says something very revolutionary. Some people would say frightening. Other people would find exhilarating. The Zohar says at one point, actually in two points, the Zohar says that the Zohar has a new description of the 613 commandments of the Torah. They're not called commandments in this, in this, in those two places. They're called six hundred and thirteen pieces of advice. Tariag eighteen, eighteen is the Aramaic for eitzot. Eitzot is advice, and the word here is yoatzaich, your counselors, your advisors. In Hebrew, it's the same word. We use counselors, and we can say advisors. In Hebrew, it's the same word. It's yoatzim. So the idea that in the future the police officers will be replaced by counselors or advisors is hinted at already in the Zohar that says that if we look at the commandments from a Kabbalistic perspective, i.e. from an inner Torah perspective, looking at it through the inner dimension of the Torah, the Pnimiyut Torah, 
then the mitzvot and the mitzvot commandments they suggest there is a commander there is someone giving out the commandments and then there's someone below him who needs to just obey and that's how it's supposed to be but if Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai in the Zohar says that the commandments are truly on the inside advice it sheds completely new light on on the entire thing that's called Torah and commandments the usage of terms like you have to observe Shabbat or you mustn't steal or you need to preserve observe the holidays or you mustn't eat something that's not kosher it becomes not the words of a a king or a, a leader of the army. It, it's something like a good friend telling you something like, you have to read this book, or you have to watch this movie, or you mustn't do that, it's really bad for you. When a friend addresses you with those words, you don't feel that they're your commander-in-chief, that they're your king, or that they're your you know, authoritative parent. You feel that they have your best interest in mind, and when they use words like, you have, you've you got to watch this movie, you have to watch this movie, although the words they're using are words that they're, they're phrased a bit like a commandment, a bit like a command, you need, you have to do this, or no, no, don't do this, you mustn't do this. But the way it's said, and the relationship between you, makes it very, very clear that they're not really, they're not going to do anything to you if you don't watch the movie. Or if you go in and do the thing that they told you not to do, they're, because they're your friends, they're not going to stop you physically. They're not going to be police officers. They're giving you those, they're, they're saying those words as advisors, as counselors, as friends. They're, they're using terminology of a commandment. You, you, you have to watch this movie. But what they mean is, I really urge you, I really think it will be good for you. You'll thank me if you read that book or watch that movie. So if we read the Zohar, the Zohar says that the commandments are really advice. It completely changes the way we listen to all the commandments of the Torah. The Torah is using words like you have to, or bad things will happen, like klalot, like curses, if you don't do this, and all this language. But if you then, the, the verses remain the same. But if you listen to the verses using the lens or the screen, of the Zohar terminology, which says the commandments are really, really just 613 ad advice, pieces of advice, then you really, you, you realize God is telling you something like a good friend, listen, I have this amazing treasure called Shabbat, it's the most amazing thing in the world, you just have to observe it, you just, you have to do it. It's just like a friend, you have to watch this movie. It's like, it's the best thing in the world, you'll be so happy if you observe Shabbat. It completely changes how we listen to the Torah. Okay, so the thing is that that's not what the verse says in our parsha. The verse in our parsha does say we need judges and we need shotrim, we need police officers or bailiffs or people actually making sure we do this. But there is, but the the Isaiah verse that talks about the advisors or the counselors, it it sort of points at a trajectory in which we're 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 hoping or we're directing ourselves toward, towards the future in which police officers will be redundant, in which we just, there, we, we won't need them anymore. It'll all be trust-based. God will trust us 
to just rely on counselors, not police officers. Counselors will sit there and convince us. And, you know, a counselor is, is basically explaining to you why something is good for you, but he doesn't force you to do it. And this is the ideal situation according to this concept. So the Rebbe says, in the future we're not going to need police officers. It'll be just counselors. Why? Basically, because we're not going to have Yetzel Hara. We're not going to have the evil inclination. Or it'll not have such a strong hold on us. We'll be able to internally, authentically, identify with the good. We'll need some, you know, coaxing We'll need advisors that just that the truth of the judges will be maybe too hard to accept. We're, we're going to need some, you know, a kind of learning curve or a getting used to something curve. And that's what the counselors are for. But we're not going to be forced. We don't, we're, going, we're not going to need being forced to do anything because the counselors will be enough. We'll listen, we'll hear them, and the truth of their words will touch our hearts. And, and once we recognize the truth, will have enough power and energy and goodwill, that's a good word for this class, will have enough goodwill to follow uh, the, the words of the advisors. Now this topic um, is a very, it's a, it's, a, it's a point of argument that's very, very deep in human culture. Should we treat people in general and little people people, kids in particular, assuming that uh, they will not heed words of truth and wisdom, that is, that man's evil inclination is very, very powerful, and therefore we're going to have, we're going to, we're going to need a lot of systems of authority, because we can't trust people's goodwill, because many, people, many people's will isn't good. It's a bad will. And if they're not going to be watched or warned or threatened with punishments or also given incentives to do good, they will not do good. Mankind, according to this view, so we have basically it's two views. The view that comes from the parasha and the view that comes from the prophet. The view that comes from the parasha is very realistic and very pessimistic. It goes, the two go together because this world has a lot of evil in it. So if you're realistic, you're, you're also pessimistic. It goes together. So one view is very realistic and pessimistic in nature, and it would say you, you can't trust people's goodwill. People have tried to trust other people's goodwill, and they were cheated and betrayed and, and hurt, and, and we all know this. It's naive to think otherwise. So you need prisons, and you also need, if you want people to do something good, they need incentives. It's two things you need, because people will not consider other people's benefits unless they have an incentive to do so, and they will not uh, abstain from doing something evil if they're not threatened by, by some negative scenario that's going to befall them. Then there is another view, and the other view, which is reflected in the prophet, the other view is that people are in nature very good. And they just need to be trusted. And if they're trusted, and if they're not ruined by a system that 
diminishes them and and pushes down on them and and tells them that they're bad or even suspects them that they're bad which they then internalize and think of themselves as bad and they become bad according to this view um, ultimately we wouldn't need any laws and we can have for example uh, very so if we're talking about edu- we're talking about education the difference between the two views will translate into a school system that's very very authoritative in which the the pupil the student needs to fear the system and to fear the teacher and punishments need to be uh, realized you know need to be executed executed is, uh, sounds like execution I mean the, the punishments need to be carried out that's what I meant and and you have to have this because if, if you're not going to have this your school system or your family it'll be a state of anarchy the kids will do what they want and because what they want is they're they're all very egoistic the the more realistic or pessimistic approach says people are egoistic in nature that's how they are that's just the way it is don't be naive to think otherwise so the, you're going to need a school system that has a lot of authority and the element of fear will need to be very strong in that system and then you'll have and then things will work out and the kids will do what they need to do and they'll be up on time and they'll they'll give in their homeworks and they'll be very much afraid of doing something that's wrong that's against the rule or the code then the other uh, the other view uh, would say no you need a trust-based system you need to have to minimize the authority and the fear and the punishments and you need to tell the students you know what I trust you I, I trust you too that you want to learn you want to advance you want to do good you want to have good grades and I'm not going to check if you, I'm going to leave the class now and I'm not going to check if you do your assignment or you don't do it I trust you and that trust will also help them uh, actually do what you want them to do and they can be trusted and the 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 extreme case would be something like a democratic school and there are also degrees of democratic schools there are all kinds of ways of going about this but the most extreme view is that you don't have to you there's no there's no rule or there's no uh, obligation to enter any class or do any exam maybe even you don't have any exams in the more extreme cases of democratic open schools liberal totally liberal schools and of course it's a spectrum there are many many views and many ways of, of, of you know being in between but the polls will be something like a very very harsh school with a lot of rules and at the, the other end of the spectrum would have an open democratic school that you don't have to do anything nobody's looking nobody's checking and if you want to go into the classes you go if you want if you want to play music you play music if you want to take an exam you take it the exam if you don't want to take it, you don't take it and and we trust you and maybe it's not maybe you're not yet ready maybe you'll be ready tomorrow it's up to you whenever you want you'll do this has been a very very deep point of of argumentation and it's very much a right wing left wing issue and we see this all the way back in the 18th century just when the concepts of right and left began so the classical examples are in the 18th century it would be uh, Th- Thomas Hobbes British philosopher 
he is the right-wing figure here who thinks that mankind is, is evil in nature, negative in nature, egoistic in nature, and they need a very strong uh, government system that will uh, put, place them in check and make sure that they don't devour, devour one another alive. That's what he calls the state of nature. State of nature is everyone is, is, is killing everyone or trying to run over everyone in order to advance their own egoistic goals. And on the left side of the aisle, we had Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He was a French philosopher, and he was extremely romantic. He's one of the fathers of romanticism. He was romantic in his view of human nature, humankind. And he says, humankind is kind. And people are good. They're ruined by authoritative systems. And the ultimate ideal education is an education that does not interfere with the natural growth of the child. And if you interfere, the, if you, the less you interfere, the better, and the child will grow into this beautiful, kind, loving, uh, caring human being. Um, a modern-day philosopher called Thomas Sowell American, very interesting philosopher, conservative. He tried to analyze this. The, he tried to analyze the basic difference between right and left. He wanted to know why is it that uh, on a variety of issues that don't seem to be connected to one another, uh, like economics, abortion, uh, nationalism versus uh, you know cosmopolitanism, um, you you constant or even uh, climate change, you constantly see that people on the right take one point of view, you know, like for example, they would be pro-capitalism, they would be anti-abortion, they wouldn't fear so much about climate change, they would very, they would be suspicious of, of you know, the very frightening uh, um, scenarios pointed out by you know the Greens, and. And and, they, and and it's totally different issues. Why is it that constantly, consi almost entirely consistently, people on the right uh, have you? You can guess pretty much guess what their opinion would be about a certain topic, and vice versa. On the left, you could guess that they're going to take up the the opposite uh, opinion. And it says, why is this? There must be an underlying common denominator. There must be something, and he called this that beneath, underneath the different points of contention and the different uh, areas that they're arguing about, there is an underlying vision. So his book on the topic was called A Conflict of Visions. He says, really, what the left and right are arguing about is not this issue or that issue. These are all offshoots of a basic vision, of the basic different vision of the world and of human, humankind. And he starts the book by pointing out, and if he starts, that means that this for him is the most uh, basic element within, this, the, within the, the two visions. He says, the right, all in all, they view man as, so the word he uses is constrained. Constrained means that there is, man is limited, man is flawed, man is forever flawed, and there's a limit to how much altruistic he can be. And sometimes that limit is very near to where he is and what the, with the way he's thinking. 
And this is how you have to work. You have to work with this. And there's no point in denying it, and there's no and it's and it's only naive to assume or to hope that it'll somehow he'll shed off his egoism. That's how we are. We're we're animals that are a little bit more advanced than animals, and our animal nature is too powerful, too strong. And uh, just accept this. It's not pessimistic, it's realistic. That's what the, the people on the right would say. Man is constrained, limited. And you shouldn't be overly hopeful as to how much they can, how much good they can do in the world. This obviously goes along with the verse in our parasha. Shoftim veshotrim. Judges aren't enough. You need shotrim, you need people to uphold the law, and to make sure that the, the law is observed. Because, because man's nature isn't good. And they're going to, if, if the judge will tell them you're guilty, and, they, and the first opportunity that they can have to avoid uh, punishment, they'll run away. That's how they are. But then he says the left has an, a, a different underlying assumption regarding humankind. And they believe that man is either very good in nature or can become good. Man is more malleable, changeable. And under the right circumstances, he will willingly do good. And that's what you see in the educational systems that conservatives and, uh, and, the, their, and their school systems tend to have more rules and discipline and punishments and threats and so on. And who uh, founds those very open schools, democratic schools? It's almost always people on the left. They're the ones pushing for having very, very much, you know, a democratic school in which you're equal to the teacher and you, you do whatever you want and we trust you and we try to echo and reflect the goodness that's within you. So that's what he's saying. He's saying this is the first and most basic element distinguishing the right-wing outlook on life and the left-wing outlook on life, is whether you view man, and that's the right-wing view, as constrained and limited. And this would, exam- this would explain, for example, why you need religion. You need religion because we need God. Man isn't enough. Man is limited. Man is God's words. We need uh, tradition, generally, not just religious tradition. We need traditional uh, uh, um, institutions because they, they check uh, the, uh, you know, man's nature, that he wouldn't harm himself or do things that are foolish. And uh, on, the other, on the other hand, it also explains the left, that the left is much more forward-looking. It doesn't, he, he thinks we don't need those institutions, those traditional institutions. They're only... Uh, diminishing our true selves, our true nature. Uh, they don't think we need to have God too much in our lives or at all in our lives. We we need to become the new God, and we should we should be the ones. This is what humanism is ultimately all about. We become our own figures of authority. And again, in education, it comes about in these two two school systems that we see that are are again there are always exceptions to every rule but they're very much connected to, to right and left. Now, how do we go about uh, you know, finding truth in all of this? So, this is very interesting. We, we have two verses. One is in the Torah. The Torah was given to us. It's eternal. It's ever, it's, it, it, there's, an, it, there's an eternal truth embedded within it. 
However, however, it was given long ago, and we know that in the future it will be revealed that the Torah we have is just the tip of an iceberg of a far grander, greater, bigger, wider, deeper Torah. That it'll be like, uh, it says that our Torah is like a breath, just a, like a hevel, like a, a fleeting breath of air. All the Torah that we're saying, that we're teaching in our, in our world, that we have taught so far, is like a hevel compared to the Messianic Torah we'll have in the future. And we get a glimpse or a taste of the Messianic Torah, where? In the prophets. Because the prophets are describing the, the future. And in the prophets, we have the verse that seems to suggest that we're not going to, lead, to need, uh, you know, policing around, and we're just going to need advisors. So it looks as if the Torah is more right-winged in nature, but the prophets are more uh, left-leaning in nature. They're more left-winged. So the Torah, the, the, the written Torah, is, is right, is, at least in this sense, it's more right-winged. But the prophet's vision is more left-winged. That's what it, it, we see. And not just the future, but not just the prophet, but also the Kabbalistic terminology we used before, that the Zohar says that the commandments are really just pieces of advice. It goes along with Yuatzim, Eitzot. So it, it, we can, we can, it's not just that the Torah is right-wing and the prophets are left-wing, but it, it seems like the revealed Torah is right-wing, and the inner dimension of the Torah is more left-wing. It's left-leaning. Let's ask something. Let's ask something else. If we look at Hasidut, you know, all this Bet Midrash is a Hasidic Bet Midrash, and we're trying to look at what Hasidut is all about. So we all know that religious people, almost always, they more identify or fully identify with right-wing politics and not left-wing politics. It's just, just, just the way it is. The more really, because the right uh, respects religion more and authority, and is always pro-religion, doesn't attack religion and religious institutions, and also doesn't attack the concept of, an, of, of a nation, for example, and the in, in the Jewish outlook, the concept of a na- of nationhood is very important. We're we're and we're a nation, and we need to be distinct. If we're all cosmopolitan, it doesn't go along with being the Jewish people. That's that it's supposed to be differentiated from other peoples. So many, many reasons why it's very the alliance between re- the religion and the right is the most uh, obvious alliance, and it doesn't, doesn't work well with the left. Every once in a while you have some left-wing religious people, just like you have some secular right-wing people. You have some left-wing religious people. But it always strikes many people as very odd, and, uh, and it, it's not very successful. There used to be a, a, in Israel a left-wing, politi- a left-wing, a religious left-wing political party. It didn't last very long. It doesn't. It, there's not enough audience for it. However, we also know there's a famous story about the Rebbe Rayatz, the sixth Rebbe of Chabad, that he was going on a train, and there were two Jews arguing about politics. It doesn't say what their argument was about. Well, we can assume uh, in that period of time it was. Socialism or communism versus capitalism. That was the, the, the hottest topic. It's still a hot topic. But then it was the hottest topic in the world. And one was saying that Judaism favors the one view, and the, this, the other one said that Judaism favors the other view. And finally they turned to the rebellious. They told him, well, what do you think? You think Judaism is more pro this, the, this view 
again, assuming it was socialism or it's more uh, pro-capitalist. And then he says, he told them something in the lines of, a Torah is not an ism. The Torah is not an ism. It's above all isms. It's the root of all isms. And it contains all isms. There is an element of truth in both isms. And we need to, we need to combine them. We see this, by the way, reflect very beautifully if we look at the third verse in our own parasha. The first verse, the first verse is that you need, um, again, judges and, and officers. Shoftim v'shotrim. And then, if we, but if we jump two verses forward to verse number three in the parasha, uh, which is really verse 20 in the chapter, then the verse says, Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdof which in English means, justice, justice, shall you pursue? What is the most obvious question about this verse? Why repeat the word justice? You can, all, you can just say, justice shall you pursue? And that would be enough. So the Hasidic explanation is, that the reason we're told, justice, justice shall you pursue, tzedek, tzedek, tirdof, is because in every argument, in every conflict, in every um, debate, there's at least an element of truth to both sides. And very often, there's quite a few elements of truth in both sides. So you need to hear the justice of both sides of the argument. There is a side of justice to each side. The word tzedek in Hebrew is actually made up of the word tzad, which means side. There are two sides to every coin, two sides to every story. And there are two sides to every question about what is just. Both rights are justified, both sides are justified in some way. They can be justified. If you look at it from a certain perspective, you can see the truth in that side. So the word justice is made up of tzad, and then kuf. What is kuf? Kuf is just a letter, but it's a letter that has a numerical value of a hundred. So we can say that each side believes that they're a hundred percent right. We have a tzad kuf and a tzad kuf. A side that thinks it's 100% right, and a side that thinks that it is 100% right, which means that they both think that the other side is 0% right, because they hold on to all the 100%. But you as a judge, or you as a human being, you as a Jew, you need to observe the commandment of tzedek tzedek tirdof, pursue both sides of justice. And it may even be true, that it may even be possible that there actually are that they actually are 100% true, both of them. If, you, if you're fully identified with one person's perspective, you, can, you have total empathy. If you have total empathy, you say, well, he's 100% right. And then you go to the other side, and you look at the other person's view through his eyes, and if you if you're to have total empathy, you would see that they, you would have to admit that he's 100% right. If you take into account all of the elements of his life, and his view, and his you know, traumas, and his and his sensitivities, and so on. And only once you did both, 
can you say, well, now I'm going to try and combine them. I'm going to try and say you are more right in this respect and you are more right in this respect. Maybe first we need to listen to you and then we'll be able to listen to you. Maybe it's a compromise. Maybe there's some creative solution in which it's a win-win situation. That very much depends on the, on the topic at hand. But it has to go through tzedek tzedek tzedek, listening, listening to the truth of both sides. And the same goes for this argument. Do we need a system of authority, or do we need, or can education be trust-based? Now let's ask the question, Hasidut. Is Hasidut more right-wing or more left-wing? So this question was posed a few years ago, uh, I think almost, almost 10 years ago it was, by Rabbi Ginsburg, uh, in a seminar that he gave about politics. He gave a very long um, seminar, in English actually, on the topic of, um, of right and left-wing politics. And he drew this whole map of differences, points of contention between right and left. And then after, after um, you know, rolling out this map or this system, he says, let's ask, let's look at the Baal Shem Tov on the one hand and the Vilna Gaon on the other hand. And try, it, it requires some abstraction because, for example, we don't know what any of them said about uh, socialism versus capitalism. <laughs> but we can abstract a little bit what, would, what they would say. And, and then he came to a very interesting conclusion. The conclusion was that in 8 out of 10 uh, criteria, the Baal Shem Tov was leftist. And Hagra, the, the spiritual figure of the Misnagdi world, the non-Hasidish, the Litvish world, were right-wing. But in two respects, it's the opposite. Only in two. So, for example, um, uh, in terms of uh, looking more towards the past or looking more towards the future for inspiration, the Litvish world looks more at the past, but the Hasidic world more at the, at the future. And this goes together. Uh, who is more conservative and who is more revolutionary? Obviously, the Misnagdi world is more conservative. It has to do with looking at the past. And the Hasidic world is very much a revolution. It's forward-looking. It's future-looking. And also, this has to do with the nature of man. Is man's nature very much flawed and and constant need of you know rectification and balancing and and having a lot of musa a lot of you know harsh authority words that would fight against their evil inclination their animal soul or can you trust their 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 inner essence that's good that have a divine soul that can be trusted and echoed so obviously the Misnagdi world is more suspicious, and this is a very basic difference between Musar and Hasidut. Musar is all about preaching to the heart and, and explaining to the heart in a very cerebral way um, how what it desires is false and wrong. It assumes all of the heart's desires are very base and low, 
And then it explains how, how bad things happen to you, whether in this world or the world to come, if you follow your heart's desires. And then it tells you, you should follow what your head is telling you, which is very different from what your heart is telling you, and it's, and, and you need to obey. And it's very, very, you know, very linear, and very, and, and again, it, the heart is preached. The heart is not evoked to connect with some inner goodness. But the Hasidic atmosphere was absolutely different. And the whole, the whole language and, you know, soundtrack, the whole vibe of Hasidut, is the, the Baal Shem Tov couldn't stand this, you know, Musa preachers. He says that's, that's not the way to awaken the... All Jews have, you know, and it's not just Jews ultimately, it's everyone has a divine spark or a divine soul or a divine goodness within them. And they, it needs to be echoed. It needs to be uh, uh, awakened, and you should you should address only the good element within the other person. Don't address the negative element at all. Trust them, trust them, reflect it back to them, compliment them about that. You know, you know, uh, uh, tell them how good they are all the time, and then and then they'll be reminded of their inner goodness. They'll be reminded, then they'll be able to do tshuva. Tshuva is all about, this is the month of tshuva, tshuva is all about returning to our truest essence, which is good. That's why, that's why it's returning. That's why, that's why coming closer to God means returning to God and returning to our own souls. Because we've been there. That's who we truly are. We, we just forgot about it. We were souls, very good Good meaning, good willed souls, and we just need to be reminded of it. This is the, the Hasidic approach. We'll know this. So, except on two, on two points, the Baal Shem Tov is leftist. What were the two points? The one point was uh, one of the points of differences between right and left is is how much you were for religion or how much you were for secularism. So, obviously, both the the, the Gvilna Gaon and the Baal Shem Tov are both religious. But then the, the question becomes, how much, how, how real do you experience the, the realm of the secular? Do you see the realm of the secular as, as independent or not as independent? Is, is, is chulin, is the realm of the secular real or not real? And Hagra's vision was that it was very real. And this is the idea that the tzimtzum was, should be the idea of contraction, God contracting his light and leaving this dark domain that's this world, whether he actually contracted his light or he didn't. And according to Haggai, he actually contracted his light, meaning the darkness is very real and the realm of the secular is very real. In that sense, he reflected and he perceived that there is actual evil in the world and actual darkness in the world and they need to be combated. Whereas the view of the Baal Shem Tov was that the contraction is not to be taken literally. It's only to our eyes. But really, God's God is fully, really omnipresent, not just watching over everything. He is within everything. And that means that there's no such thing as pure, complete evil or darkness. Underneath every darkness and everything that's evil, there's an underlying light and goodness that needs to be exposed. And it is within you, not outside of you. So in this sense, the Baal Shem Tov becomes the more right-wing one, because he's saying religion is everywhere, or God is everywhere. There's no room for the secular. And the other opinion, 
The other point in which the, the Baal Shem Tov became the right-winger is regarding the question of small government versus big government. The, because the, the, right, the right is capitalist, the right doesn't want a lot of taxes and doesn't want a lot of regulation over big businesses. So they favor small governments because they want a laissez-faire, let do, let the businessmen do their thing, and that'll create wealth for everyone. And the, the left-wingers, being more socialist in nature, they want a big government with a lot more uh, taxation, and then the, the government has to be big in order to distribute the taxes uh, in many, many areas in life. So here, the, the Baal Shem Tov is more right-wing because he believes that you just need a Rebbe, you don't need a lot of councils and people making decisions. The Hagra thought that he, we went with the traditional system of having seven wise men in every Jewish community. That's how it was. You had seven wise men. It was more of a democracy. They would, they would uh, decide things together. It's a bigger government, so to speak. And it really, but here it really connects because a small government is is basically saying we trust you more. There is a side also in in modern day right right wing left wing politics that the right. Is gives more credit to people where, which seems to be the opposite of what we said, but it's 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 an it's an interesting element that's there. The 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 capitalist politics is based on the fact that we're all egoistical and it's and it's good. I mean, oh, it's not good, but that's how it is. So let's work with egoism, and then people will try to make the more mon- the most money, and it'll be good for economics. But all the the right wingers, the right wingers, especially religious right wingers also say that charity needs to be based on authentic giving. You don't need a welfare state, because if, you, if it's a welfare state, uh, people don't, don't feel that they have to give any money personally to someone. Say, well, the state will take care of you. Don't come to me, go to the welfare office. They'll help you. So the, the left-wing people are saying, well, yeah, that, that's good. You know, the, the government will distribute all the, the money and the taxes. But here it's the right-wingers saying, let the goodwill, you know, flourish naturally. People are egoistical. So most right-wingers, actually, it's mostly religious right-wingers. And this is where it, this is the Baal Shem Tov's idea comes into play here, that he's, he's left-wing in almost everything, but he's right-winged in terms of favoring a small government, so to speak, but the reason he's right-winged in this is, again, because he trusts people to do good. He doesn't want to have all these, you know, mashgichim. Mashgichim, in the, in the Litvish yeshiva, you have a mashgich. That's very much like a police officer. You don't have something like this in the Hasidic yeshiva. And in ideal Hasidic yeshiva, many Hasidic yeshivas have become, are still Hasidic only nominally. But the way they... they it works, the way they work is they're, is they're very much misnagdi. But in an ideal Hasidic yeshiva, you wouldn't have mashgichim, you would just have mashpi'im. Mashpi'im are like advisors, counselors. They help you do what we assume you want to do, which is the good things, the good deeds. And I'm just going to work with you until you, you're strong enough to do what you really want to do. So we, we so just to to round things up, the the Litvish world, the Litvish view that's coming from the Vilna Gaon is more 
aligned with the verse of the Parsha, and it's more right-winged in nature. But Hasidut is more aligned with the prophetic ideal of just counselors and no police officers. And it's, uh, and it's, so it's more left-wing in nature. That's how it is. And also it connects to the inner dimension of the Torah, like we said, that the outer dimension of the Torah is more grounded in the past and the present. But the Zohar, which talks about 613 pieces of advice, it's more oriented towards the future. So what do we do with this? How do we combine this? So the general rule says that we need to include the left within the right. This is called Le'achlala Smola Be'yemina. The right is more realistic. That's how it is. Right-wingers tend to be more sober regarding short-term solutions. We see this in Israel very, very clearly. That the left-wingers have a very clear utopia. They want peace in the Middle East, and they believe that if we distribute the land to two states, that will bring peace. Without going into this, they have a very clear goal. The right in Israel doesn't have a clear goal. It just says we can't have those agreements with the Palestinians because they're not to be trusted. And the Iranians and the rest, we need, to have, we, need to be, we need to make sure the Iranians don't have a bomb, we need to make sure that the Palestinians don't have a state and an army, because then they'll... So that's just saying how we observe, how we protect ourselves in the present. But then if you ask the, the classical right-winger in Israel, but okay, so, okay, so, so we're going to have a strong army and we make sure the Iranians don't have a bomb, what then? And you don't have a good answer. The answer is, I don't know, we, we live by our swords and, we, and hopefully something will change. And, and they never talk this language. They don't have a clear ideal because they're focused on looking at the world through very realistic lenses and just seeing that the, the, not all people are good-natured, and, and, and in fact, most of them aren't, and, and you have to be very careful with this. But here we see that Hasidit, Hasidut is more of a left-wing view. And that's where we should be heading. And that's where we should be striving. So, what is the, pro- the correct balance? How do we place the left within the right? Placing the left within the right, meaning you first need to have the right. The right is like a vessel. That's what is going to contain elements from the left. So it start, you have to start out by saying, well, I, I, although Ani, I'm, I'm listening to the verse, Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdof, I can see the truth of both sides, and that's what we try to do throughout this class. But if the question is, you know, just like Hillel and Shammai, you know, these and these are the words of the living God. But you have to start somewhere. So you start with Hillel. And you say Hillel, and Hillel is a right-winger here. It's, we, don't, we can't explain all the, how, it all com- how it all connects. But in, in, in terms of politics or education, we need to say, well, we have to admit, although we really want to trust everyone and have faith in everyone, we have to admit that the right... They have, they're, they're, they're right about at least one thing, that we need rules, we need institutions, we need you know, frameworks people can work in. It can't be just a free-for-all, you know, democratic world. And, and you, you, if you try and raise a family this way, 
you know, it'll be a lot of fun, but it won't turn out good. You know, people, if you don't demand anything from your kid, they're not going to demand anything from themselves. And if you don't have any authority, then they're going to have to fall into the illusion that they are adults long before they're truly adults. And that's, and that's you know, the root of all the, negative, all the very bad things they could do to themselves. If they think, if they have the illusion of adulthood before they're really adults. So you need to be the adult, and that means you need to have to be an authoritative figure. And that means you're, you're right-winged. So the structure that you build in your home, in your school, it has to start out as more of a right-winged uh, institution, or misgeret, you know, a framework. But the atmosphere within this structure, the spirit, the energy, the vibe, the approach needs to be completely the opposite. We have all these rules. We have a lot of rules. It's good to have, you know, not too many, but we have we have first we have the rules of the Torah. I abide them. I abide by them also. It's not just you respecting me. I'm also respecting my parents, and it's, we're both observing Shabbat. And there are some things that you, as a kid, I don't allow you, and it'd be allowed later on. But that's part of. I'm obligated by this also. So we have all these rules. And it's very clear, and, and, and the house is based on not something, you know, fuzzy or foggy, or, you know, everything is good, or whatever you do. And it's, not, it's not good for the kid. The kid need, needs to be demanded and inspired to do more than they can. And, and you can teach them all these rules and, and prohibitions, and it's good for them. They like it. They like the laws. It's good. But you don't go about being so suspicious that if you don't look at them, and if you don't check them, uh, they're probably not going to observe the rules. No, you have to you, you give out the rules, you give out the statements, and you give out the, you know, prohibitions and everything, and you trust them to, to like it, to identify with it, to see the truth of it. And ultimately, the vibe, the energy, has to be more left-leaning, more like... So on the outside, it's like a formal, authoritative institution. But on the inside, you, you give a lot of space, a lot of room, a room to, mis- to make mistakes, and a room to fall down, and you're not angry at them. And it's human to you know, fall or to you know, say, oh, I don't feel like doing this. And then you, you, know, you uplift them. And if they suddenly they go a little bit backwards, or they, then you, you don't... You don't become hysterical, and you don't become, and you're not suspicious of them. You know, we have schools that they have hidden cameras everywhere, making sure they they check your bags to see if you have a, you know, a smartphone that's not allowed. That that's very harmful. The, the left wingers are right in this sense. If you're suspicious, and you're constantly checking them, and you don't believe that they want to observe any of your mitzvot, the message you're giving out to them is nobody wants to do this. Nobody likes this. It's just this very uh, external system that is uh, um, oppressive. And they're going, to, they're going to just, you know, kick it and come out. That's what they're going to do. That's what ha- it happens in very, very democratic systems that people, you know, do what they want and then they can have, you know, a lot of... If, if society is too liberal, there'll be a lot of drugs and a lot of promiscuity. And it happens in overly authoritative societies as well. The same result. 
of drugs and perm permissiveness is, and you see them, and you can see where they meet, you know, in those, uh, you know, kikarot, uh, how do you say, you know, town squares or places in the city at night, you meet people from the most liberal societies and from the most Haredi societies, and they meet together and they do drugs together. Because, they, they, because the truth is really a balance, and the balance is that you need a lot of authority on the, on the outside, and a lot of trust on the inside. And, you know, have a, having a good eye on you. The good eye that tells you, you know, I think you're really hurting yourself when you're doing this. Just like the friend that says, you know, you really shouldn't do this, or you, you have to do this, it's so good for you. And that should be the atmosphere on the inside. This is how you can raise a, a wonderful Jewish home and a wonderful Jewish uh, school, or even a non-Jewish one, if you're, if you're non-Jewish and you were just looking for the good, a good formula in order to build your family and to build your school system and to build your community, is that you need all the rules and you do have a lot of, it has to be very good-spirited also, and with a lot of trust and no, and, and no suspicions on the inside. So this is our class for this week's Parsha of Shuftim. Hi, if you enjoyed this class, please click the like button and subscribe to the channel. On YouTube, also make sure to click the bell icon. To keep the classes flowing and free of charge, please consider supporting us on Patreon, an amazing platform for supporting independent creators. You're also welcome to join our weekly live Zoom class every Sunday evening, Israel time. You can find all the links in the description below. Thank you very much, keep healthy, and see you soon.